Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash ZTV. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Moderna TX Incorporated. Welcome to this Pure Voice panel discussion on COVID 19. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Dr. Buddy Creech and Professor Elon Youngster. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hi, I'm Buddy Creech. I am Professor of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, in the United States. And Joining me today is Dr. Elon Youngster, who is head of pediatric infectious diseases and the Center for Microbiome Research at Tel Aviv University in Israel. And today, our goal is to really talk about children and COVID vaccine. And what we want to be able to do is provide a framework for conversations that we can have with each other, as well as with families who may express some hesitancy around becoming vaccinated. And what Elon and I want to be able to do is think about this as three C's. We're going to talk about confidence in vaccines, trying to address some of the, the mistruths or disinformation that's out there about safety and efficacy. We're going to talk about complacency that may have set in at this point in the pandemic, where maybe the perceived risk of COVID infection is low. And then in a second section, we're going to talk about the convenience factor.、Um, it's sometimes been confusing to figure out when to get boosted and how to do it and which vaccine to receive. We're going to try to provide some strategies around that. In the next few minutes, we're really going to focus on confidence and complacency. And we want to start with a survey、um, that many of you may have completed looking at the clinician's perception on factors that impact their hesitancy in vaccinating children. And, and I think this will probably mirror、uh, our experiences locally and, and maybe around the world, which is Concerns around long term side effects of vaccine were most important to clinicians, including some concerns about vaccine efficacy and, and maybe some misinformation around it. But the clinician's perception about parental concerns or family hesitancy really focused on the long term side effects of the vaccine in children. So, Ilan, I would just ask is this surprising to you? Does this match your experience as well? Completely. I mean, it's not surprising. It, it, parents are always worried about long term side effects with any medication or vaccine that is given to their child. And combine that with the fact that there was so much misinformation early on in the pandemic about the vaccines,、um, starting with the fact that they are called mRNA vaccines and everyone thought they were changing the genetics of, of their child,、um, and、uh, continued with the fact that. People thought that these vaccines were developed within 12 months without knowing that the development of these vaccines had been going out on for decades before the COVID、uh, pandemic. So, no, it's not surprising at all. It's just unfortunate because、um, a lot of、uh, these concerns could be addressed、uh, if, if we knew、uh, how to talk to the parents. We recognize that as new variants have emerged, that we've had varying degrees of vaccine effectiveness, especially against all disease. And against all disease, we've sometimes seen vaccine effectiveness range from maybe 30 or 40% as high as 70 or 
But what we really are focused on right now, especially as this virus mutates, is effectiveness against severe disease, against hospitalization. And what we know is that protection against severe disease and hospitalization remains impressively high, upwards of 70 or 80% at least. And that's why even though it takes more antibody and a more of an immune response to protect against infection, we're still getting very high effectiveness against severe disease and the complications of COVID. Yeah, so, so what we do know about the vaccines is that they do prevent a severe disease or a severely symptomatic disease. Um, they, they are actually quite efficient uh, in preventing a severe disease. So even though we are not sure how good they are at uh, preventing spread of the disease overall, we do know that they can prevent hospitalizations, uh, ventilations, and severe disease. So let's talk a little bit about the safety of these vaccines. And let's start with the, the short-term consequences, the long-term consequence, consequences next. So on the short term, this vaccine looks like every other vaccine that we've had in children, namely that there is leg or arm pain, fatigue, headache, achiness, and sometimes fever. And those happen certainly more commonly than placebo, but they're short-lived. 24, 48 hours, maybe some uh, fever reducers or pain relievers, and these symptoms go away very quickly. It mirrors what we see in adults. It's often worse after second dose and sometimes the booster dose. But there are still concerns about long-term consequences of the vaccine. And so maybe one of the things I lead with, uh, with families is to say, in our experience in a number of vaccine safety initiatives that we have here, um, we never see side effects that have their onset more than six or eight weeks after vaccine. It's usually the first month, month and a half, which implies that if, if something hasn't happened in those first month, two month period, nothing's going to happen. We're not worried about long term, 10, 20, 30 years from now, consequences of vaccines, because that's not how vaccines work. Yeah, so, so we can talk for hours about the safety of these vaccines, but, but I think the bottom line is that uh, there has never been a, a vaccine that has been under more scrutiny that, than these vaccines when they came out. And there has never in, in mankind history been a vaccine that has been given to so many people uh, in, in such a short period of time. So basically we have a lot of experience now, even though it's a relatively new vaccine, we have a lot of experience and almost every country in the world implemented some kind of vaccine safety initiative to, to monitor uh, side effects. And, and honestly, the only thing that has stood out to date is the uh, myocarditis um, that you're going to talk uh, a few words about. One of the things that we have tried to um, reassure parents on is that this is typically a mild disease in children. And we did that before the vaccine was available because there was a lot of fear. And yet our children's hospitals weren't being overrun by acute COVID cases. But as we reassured parents, I worry now that that's backfired a little bit on us in that there's a complacency around being vaccinated. So can you talk a little bit about the fact that, that we recognize COVID is typically mild in children but it's not always mild. How does that compare to other childhood infections? How does that change by age group? Can, can you talk a little bit about that? So I, I completely agree. It is usually a mild disease. And, and, but what happens paradoxically is when you have a disease that is mild, but 
um, is very contagious and a lot of people contract the disease, then you will always have the outliers, those that present with severe manifestations, even if generally speaking, it's a mild disease. And it's the same for COVID. We see a lot of children that are positive without even knowing it. But at the hospital, we do see the outliers and we've seen children that were previously healthy coming in with very severe cardiac disease, respiratory disease, being on ECMO or ventilated for many days. And these are not only children with chronic underlying diseases. On the contrary, we know today that almost two thirds of children coming in with COVID to the hospital have no underlying chronic disease and no, um, they're not uh, immune compromised. So the problem is we do not know how to predict which children are going to exhibit severe disease um, or not. I just wanted to say first that when you're looking at the first two C's you are talking about, it, it's worrisome to me that even among providers and clinicians, uh, there is not enough confidence in the vaccine uh, and 40% actually think that um, the complications uh, of the vaccine are worse than complications after the disease and, and that's clinicians. So, so if you ask this question, parents, um, I'm sure the, the percentage will be much higher. Um, it is a mild disease mostly, it's true. We've been thinking about the myocarditis bit a lot because we were part of those early assessments uh, when we started to see myocarditis. And just like when we saw some allergic reactions or um, deep venous clots after uh, the adenoviral vectored vaccines, um, certainly we've taken this seriously. It's challenging because the disease itself causes uh, myocarditis, and that's a hard one. The myocarditis that we do see after COVID vaccine is milder. It lasts for a much shorter period of time, and it doesn't seem to have the same risk of long-term side effects. Although we admit that story is still being written, there's still kids that are in long-term follow-up, but as best we can tell, the overwhelming majority um, of, of these children return to normal activity, including competitive sports, very quickly after these events because their hearts return to normal. But let's talk about numbers. The best numbers that we have right now would suggest that the highest risk is in boys that are 16 to 17 years of age, and the risk is about 80 per million doses, which would be about eight per 100,000. Now, clinicians may see different numbers that are floating out there, especially in social media, that's one in 500 or one in 1,000, and that's simply not true. We don't have any data to support those kinds of numbers. What we do have is a risk that's about eight per 100,000 or somewhere close to that, which would mean that it is far more rare to have myocarditis after the vaccine than it would be after uh, the COVID infection itself. Not only that, but we've been able to get these numbers down lower by spacing out the interval between the first and second dose. It's that second dose that provides the highest risk. And we don't see that same risk after subsequent booster doses of vaccine. So while we don't yet understand the exact mechanism why, and we predict that it's due to the spike protein of coronavirus being made, just like it would be during a, an infection, uh, we don't think this is a problem with the mRNA vaccine itself. Um, I think that's important as we counsel families, especially young adult boys um, and, and, and young men about the vaccine. 
So Elon, we, we've taken a bit of time here and I want to have some key takeaways. Maybe maybe I'll just summarize a couple of things and ask you to, to give us that sort of 30 second elevator pitch. You're in the elevator with a family that's vaccine hesitant. How do you encourage them? And, and for me, I would simply say that we know that this vaccine has effectiveness against severe disease. And because we don't know which kids are most at risk, we encourage vaccination for everyone, not just for personal health, but for the protection of the public as well. And the side effects we see beyond what we would normally see that are healthy side effects after a vaccine are myocarditis in young boys. We're following that very carefully, but the risk of myocarditis is certainly less than what we see with disease. And it's a vaccine approach that will protect hearts far more than risking infection over and over again. But Ilan, I wonder if you have some final thoughts uh, about this topic. I completely agree with everything you said. And, and I always tell parents that, uh, as we already discussed, while it's generally a mild disease, many of the diseases we vaccinate against are generally mild. We are vaccinating children to prevent the odd severe manifestation. And when you're talking about risk benefit, it's clear to me, at least, that the benefit of, of using the COVID vaccines far outweighs the risks, uh, given what we've just discussed. Well, Elon, I want to thank you for joining me today for this. Hopefully this has provided some uh, framework to be able to have these conversations with colleagues and with families. And we hope that the results of it will be a higher degree of confidence in the safety of these vaccines and their effectiveness, as well as addressing some of the complacency issues. Thank you very much. Hello, my name is Ilan Youngster. I'm head of pediatric infectious diseases at Tel Aviv University in Israel. And joining me today for this discussion is Professor Buddy Creech from the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee from the US. Welcome to the second part of our discussion about COVID vaccines and children. In the previous session, we discussed the first two Cs, the confidence and the complacency, and now we're going to talk about convenience because it doesn't matter how safe the vaccines are or how efficient they are, if it's not convenient for the patient to get the vaccine, they will not be vaccinated. So um, fortunately, when we are talking about pediatric vaccines for COVID, it's very simple because we are mostly talking about the two mRNA vaccines. They are the only ones that are approved for children of all ages, starting uh, from six months and above, um, with the only exception of uh, the Novavax vaccine that is also approved in Europe for children starting age 12 and above. But in, at least in my home country in Israel, the pediatric vaccines are only the mRNA vaccines uh, the, um, that we are talking about. Now, there's been a lot of uh, confusion about the vaccine schedule. Both vaccines are approved for children as a primary dose, two doses um, of vaccine separated by at least four weeks from one another. That is, uh, in my country at least, what is recommended for every child starting age six years and above. For children six months to six years, our Ministry of Health has said that they recommend the vaccine for any child with a chronic underlying disease 
um, and any immune compromised children. Uh, and they are approved for healthy children and recommended, but they are not actively given unless the parents ask for these vaccines. Buddy, can you comment about the recommendations in the US? Absolutely. You know, I think what we've been able to see in the U.S. is that by and large, the uptake has been for the mRNA vaccines. Um, we recognize that there are some differences in the way that we've done vaccines for younger children. I think one of the challenges for us has been that the age ranges that were studied for Moderna and Pfizer are slightly different and that the dosing schedule for a primary series, at least for younger children, were different between Pfizer and Moderna because of us wanting and, and maybe needing to drive the dose down from the typical 30 micrograms of Pfizer to something more like three, or the typical 100 micrograms of the Moderna vaccine down to closer to 25. So because we've had these changes in dosing and changing in ages, um, it's gotten a little confusing. And so in the U.S., we basically say two doses of a vaccine followed by a bivalent booster is the best way to go, really regardless of product in those younger age groups. And, and again, we've tried to space out the vaccine a little bit between doses one and two to reduce side effects. Once we get into those that are older, we're just doing uh, a, a one-dose uh, primary for people that are 18 years of, older, uh, of age or older, and then getting them right into the bivalent booster. And then finally, I would say that we do have Novavax available for children that are 12 years of age and older, although the uptake has been fairly limited. Thank you. And, and, and I think the European experience is very similar with mostly the mRNA vaccine being used in children. And the recommendations in Europe differ a little bit between the different countries, but the vaccine is approved in all the European countries uh, starting in six years of age and above, and in most of the European countries also from six months to six years of age. Now, another confusing question that people always ask me is, what about if the child had corona just recently? Do I still have to give the vaccine or not? And that is becoming even more confusing uh, when, you, when you vector in the fact that um, they do not always know um, what the variant the child was, uh, uh, was infected with was, and, and do you still need the bivalent vaccine booster now or the regular booster? How do you talk to parents about that issue? So what we typically will recommend is if a child has had COVID, we wait two or three months before offering them a vaccine, maybe longer, but, but not too much longer. We know that that protection is not durable and over time it will wane. And therefore, even if a child's been uh, ill, we still recommend vaccination. Why? Because those who have mild disease, they may not make a whole lot of antibody. I completely agree with that. And in fact, a study was just published recently on reinfections in children, a US study that actually showed that the chance of reinfection within 90 days after disease is very, very, very low. However, after 100 days, there are actually quite a few children that become sick with COVID again. So our recommendation is waiting four months from uh, disease and then giving the vaccine. Now, we have to make the vaccine uh, convenient to families. And, and you, during childhood, 
children are given so many different vaccines. And one of the most common questions we get from practitioners and from parents alike is whether you can give this vaccine with the other childhood vaccines. And, and the answer is yes, overwhelmingly yes. Uh, make it as easy as possible for the parents to get this vaccine. And you can definitely co-administer this vaccine together with other live vaccines, with killed vaccines, with any other childhood vaccine you want to give it. Uh, that is completely okay. And we prefer that to increase acceptancy uh, among parents. Now, when you talk to parents, I think that generally uh, they're divided into two broad groups. Uh, one uh, group of hesitant parents are those that are concerned because they do not trust the system. They do not trust the government. They do not trust the vaccine producers and they do not trust the health systems. And, and that is really uh, a group that is tough to address. Uh, I try to provide them with as much uh, information as possible. Uh, the other big group is uh, parents that do not uh, give their children vaccines due to religious region, uh, reasons. And, and there we find it very efficient to deal with uh, key opinion leaders, a religious leader, talk to a rabbi, a priest, uh, someone that can address the community and help us convince people that it is their own in their own best to vaccinate the children. What is your um, experience with vaccine hesitant parents? The two that seem to predominate in those that would describe themselves as vaccine hesitant are a desire for freedom. In other words, don't tell me what I have to do. Don't tell me what I have to do for my children. I want freedom to make my own decision. And the second is an issue around purity. Um, I don't trust or I don't know enough about what I'm putting into my body. And so this might govern things like dietary restrictions, or it might govern things like um, school mandates for vaccines. And I think the most important thing that we have to recognize is that parents and we want the same thing in general, the health of their child and the health of those around us. And so let's work with what their sensibilities are and let's address those things. How do we deal with freedom? Do you want the freedom to be able to fly and to move around without a mask and without this fear of, of a pandemic virus? Then get vaccinated. Do you want to live without the fear of being um, hospitalized? Do you want freedom to, to live happily? Then get vaccinated. About the purity, I remind what's in the vaccine. It's one of the purest vaccines that we have, and we're giving a controlled amount of it. The active ingredient here is this genetic sequence that mirrors what we would see if we got the infection itself. And then there's a fat bubble, there's a little bit of salt, there's a little bit of sugar, there's some uh, acid-base balance stuff that we would do like we would put in vinegar. So the ingredient list here is, is remarkably good. And what that means for us is that we would expect the safety to be very high as well. Compare that to the wild type infection that has a lot of different proteins in it it has an unknown amount of those proteins and it can just continue to grow in your body. When we frame it in those ways, sometimes we get parents to say, oh, I hadn't thought about it like that. And now we have an opportunity for change. Well, at least in my experience, one of the most important things when you discuss uh, these vaccines with vaccine hesitant parents is to acknowledge that there are side effects. I mean, we have to, to admit it and uh, tell the truth that there are side effects, but 
when you're looking at the grand scheme, the risk of these side effects is much smaller than the risks associated with contracting the disease. And, and I think that is one of the most important things uh, we can uh, tell parents. So at the end of the day, it's a lot like me wearing a safety belt in my car. Thank goodness I have not had an automobile accident in many, 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 many years. And yet every time I get into my car, I'm putting my safety belt on. Why? Because the risk, even if rare, could be devastating. And so that's the model that I think we need to be talking with our parents about. It's a model that works for influenza. Quite frankly, it's a, a model that works for things like measles, which also was in large part a mild or moderate disease in many kids, but way more commonly than we would want caused devastating disease in those children. So we've made a habit in vaccinology of protecting the many or protecting the few by vaccinating the many. And I think we want to keep doing that with COVID. It's the immunologic safety belt that we need to protect ourselves during this pandemic and for pandemics to come. So if I can take your safety belt analogy one step further, because I was once asked by a parent when I used that analogy, uh, that he heard about uh, someone that was in a car accident and actually died because he couldn't get out of the car because he was stuck by his seatbelt. And, and I think that actually is a good analogy because we know that it can happen. There are side effects to the vaccines, but they are infinitely more rare than uh, the, the, the added benefit you get from getting these vaccines. So the safety belts save many, 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 many more lives each year than uh, the harm they do. So to sum up, I think uh, we discussed the first two C's during the first session, the confidence and complacency. And now we are talking about the fact that we need to make these vaccines easily available to parents if we want the children to receive the vaccines. Now, there's so much confusing data out there, but basically it's very simple. Two doses uh, of the mRNA vaccines are approved from in children starting six months of age and are uh, definitely recommended by most health authorities worldwide with or without a booster vaccine, depending on which country you live in. But many countries also recommend a booster for children starting six years of age and above. Um, do you have any final words uh, to sell? Well, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, what we're dealing with is um, realizing that this is a mild infection, but realizing that in some children it's not realizing that the vaccine doesn't necessarily prevent all infections, but it does prevent severe infections and recognizing that it's remarkably safe and very rarely are there side effects that are far milder than the side effects from getting infected. So thank you for joining me today for this session. And hopefully we have convinced providers and through them parents that these vaccines are safe and efficient in protecting their children from COVID disease. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.